This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane. And it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and its select stores. Today we welcome Maya Rose Craig, a 20-year-old British Bangladeshi who is the foremost bird watcher of her generation. Three years ago, Maya Rose became the youngest person to have seen half the world's bird species. I first learned about Maya Rose from eco-conscious fashion designer Stella McCartney, and I could instantly see why Stella is a fan. Maya Rose, who grew up in a village near Bristol, England, has been a passionate conservationist and a climate activist since she was a tween, when she launched her blog called Bird Girl. At 13, she created a camp for what she calls Visibly Minority Ethnic, or VME, kids to make nature-driven activities like bird watching more diverse. In 2016, she founded Black to Nature to also make nature and environmental lobbying organizations more minority-inclusive. Since then, Maya Rose has interviewed Jane Goodall and shared the stage with climate activists Greta Thunberg and Billie Eilish. In 2020, Maya Rose received an honorary doctorate from Bristol University. She has also had a great deal of personal turmoil in her life due to family mental illness. She talks about that, her activism, and the beauty of birds and all biodiversity in her new memoir, also called Bird Girl, published by Celadon Books in the United States and Jonathan Cape in Great Britain. The Times of London described her book as a cross between a travel diary, an ornithologist's guide, and a thriller. And the esteemed writer Margaret Atwood has called Bird Girl lyrical, poignant, and insightful. I think that's the perfect way to describe Maya Rose, too. She spoke to us from her dorm room at Cambridge University in England, where she is studying human, social, and political sciences. Maya Rose, welcome to The Green Dream. First, tell us what is twitching and what makes someone a twitcher? Twitching is sort of like a niche type of bird watching, and I'm someone who would class myself as a very obsessive bird watcher. And twitching is sort of like an even more obsessive subset of that, which is essentially groups of bird watchers who go all around the country trying to find as many rare birds as possible. And that includes when they hear about birds that have gotten a bit lost on migration, rushing off to go and see them as well. There's this moment in my book, Bird Girl, where I talk about my mum being introduced to my dad for the first time. He was already a very obsessive bird watcher and someone goes, oh, be careful, he's a twitcher. And she doesn't know what that means. And she says that if she did, she probably would have run away screaming. (laughs) She thought it must just be some weird type of slang. And by the time she realised that it was really about birds, she was in far too deep. Right. How did you get into bird watching? And are you considered a twitcher? It's quite difficult to explain me getting into bird watching in that I've always been really, really into birds because my parents both were. My mum did eventually get converted to bird watching as well, as did my older sister. 
And so by the time I was born, I was already surrounded by a trio of people obsessed with birds. I was nine days old the first time they took me out fishing, actually. I think it was more that as I got a bit older, I had this light bulb moment where I realised other people weren't obsessed with birds and nature in the same way, which was a very weird realisation for me as a kid. From that love of birds and nature that all of the other things that I've been up to over the years have come from, the environmental campaigning and the environmentalism and all of that, like it came from the bird watching. Right. Do you consider yourself a twitcher? Suppose so, yeah. I have dabbled in twitching in the past. I have a whole chapter of the book dedicated to my parents and I doing a year of very intense twitching where we're rushing all over the UK trying to see as many birds as possible in a year, which for a seven-year-old, that was very good fun. But I think, especially since the pandemic, actually, I've definitely moved away from trying to see as many new things as possible and having spent a lot of time just in my own garden gained a new real appreciation for just the local garden birds and things like that which was really lovely actually that is now you say there's etiquette to birding like what um you talked about having to be patient yeah there's lots of things lots of unwritten rules that I think a lot of birders would struggle to put into words themselves but it's definitely being patient being quiet not prioritizing you seeing the birds better over other people seeing them at all so people will get really annoyed if people try and like get closer and closer to say a tree where a bird sat in in case they scare it off and things like that I guess a lot of it boils down to having an appreciation and a respect for nature rather than it just being inherently a hobby that's all about the lists, the numbers and ticking off yet another thing. I suppose bird watchers like to see from other bird watchers an appreciation of the nature they're looking at. Right. Now, you're 20 years old and you've already traveled the seven continents to watch birds. What was your favorite excursion, do you think? Oh, I think that's such a difficult question. I have been lucky and I've traveled so much, but also I've seen so many cool birds. I find it difficult even to say what my favorite birds are. But I do think in general... Like, what was the coolest trip, though? Was there a really cool trip? In terms of my favorite location in general, it has to be South America for a few reasons. Like, I think it's just so incredibly biodiverse. There are so many species of birds and nature there. I've seen literally over a thousand different species in South America, which is insane. But also, I talk a lot in the book about how my family and I used nature and birds to deal with various things that we were coping with at the time to do with my mum being very unwell. And it was when we went on a very long trip to South America that we did a lot of that healing together. And so I think it'll always be a very special place to me. But I think objectively the coolest trip I've been on is probably when I've gone to either of the poles, actually, which is insane that I've been to both. My family decided that we wanted to go to all seven continents. And the last one was, of course... Antarctica and so they decided to book this trip where we spent a week and a half in Antarctica seeing all the seabirds seeing all the penguins that was just amazing birds and also just a really bonkers trip (laughs) a few years later I ended up traveling up to the Arctic Circle with Greenpeace on an environmental campaigning mission where essentially I was living on a boat for a month and we were surrounded by ice in the middle of nowhere and not quite as many birds, but the few that I did see were incredible. It was this fantastic landscape. And also, you know, we were doing a lot of climate change campaigning while we were up there. And so it also just felt 
incredibly emotional and incredibly impactful. Right. How many species of birds are there today? There are around 10,500 bird species, which is a lot. Which is a lot. And you write in your book that only a dozen people have seen more than 9,000, so basically 90% of the birds that exist today. And only 40 people have seen 8,000 or 80%. How many have you seen? I have seen around 5,700 species of birds, which is a lot of birds. It's more than half. Because when I was a kid, I was the kind of kid who really liked goals and numbers and all that sort of thing. And I really liked the idea of having seen over half of the world's bird species, which is around 5,000. 300-ish before I was 18 and it was this big thing that for years I was like oh I'll never actually see that many birds but it's a really nice goal to have and all these things and then I managed to do it the summer after I turned 17 and it was just this crazy moment when I was in Brazil. What did you see? What was the halfway mark bird? Well I like to say my halfway mark bird was the harpy eagle Mm. which is it's this bird I spent about nine years trying to see. It's this massive eagle, the biggest eagle in the world, in fact, that you get in the Amazon. It's got this amazing big crest, these brilliant yellow eyes, and it hunts by grabbing monkeys off the top of trees. Like, it's massive. I decided I wanted to see one when I was eight years old, and I saw one finally when I was 17. And it's actually the bird that's on the front of the UK edition of Bird Girl, because it's probably my favourite bird in the world. And I was just so excited when I saw it. Like, my mum says she's never seen me smile so much in my life. (laughs) Yeah. That's fantastic. And how many birds are there? How many species are there in the UK, roughly? Around 300. Oh, because you said in the book, citing 300 or more in the UK is a good round number. Yeah. Do you mean in the UK or in the whole world as a UK person? In the UK, this is what I mean when I say bird watching gets a little bit obsessive, especially (laughs) somewhere like the UK where there's not necessarily new native bird species to be seen. And so there are certain times of years where, say, for example, the American migratory birds are flying, there'll be really strong winds or a big storm, and suddenly there's loads of American birds that shouldn't be in the UK that have suddenly washed up there. And then all the UK birders get very, very excited because they're seeing birds that they never could have seen otherwise. And so that's how you get people in the UK whose lists go up to like 500 plus, even though technically there aren't that many species in the UK. And maybe that's why bird watchers all start to go a little bit crazy. By what age were you when you first saw 300 in a year? You clocked 300. You were little, right? I can't. Seven or eight, something like that? Yeah, actually, because I did my big year, the year that my parents and I went twitching for a year, we saw over 300 species that year, I think. So I must have been at least six or seven, which again is kind of insane. There are lots of things that I think as a kid felt very natural and very normal. And then I get much older and I look back and it's like, oh, my parents were a little bit insane. Like just In fact, that was a record for a child, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and just like the way that... You're the record holder of the number of birds seen by a little kid. Yeah, and before that, it was my sister who held the record in the UK. <laughs> oh, um, basically, because not many... She not appreciated that. Yeah, not many kids obsessed with birds have parents who are also obsessed with birds and are willing to take them all over the place to see them. And I think like... In general, that boils down to a lot of the love of birds for me, where it's like such a family thing. Even when I was a teenager and like very angsty, it was always the bird watching that I returned to because it was something I associated so much with spending quality time with my parents and stuff, I guess. One of the reasons that is so special for me. Now, how many do you see every year that you clock and you count in species? 
to be honest, I have literally no idea. In the UK, I don't keep a year list, especially, like I said, since I've grown to enjoy not seeing new doing the same things (laughs) there's a few things in my first year at uni I kept a list I have it here actually I kept a list of all the bird species I saw from my university accommodation window I lived in the middle of the city it was not loads it's literally this page probably has 30 species on it I probably see more than 100 it's not lots and I think I don't mind either Um, that's nice yeah now one of the birds that you've seen is an albatross What was that like? Where did you see it? How big was it? Yeah, the albatross is probably one of my most special birdwatching memories. Um, I I have to this day, and I saw it when I was seven years old. And it was off the coast of Cornwall. My parents and I had been birdwatching on the coast all day, or all morning at least. And it was a bit cold and a bit rainy and I was feeling a bit miserable and then suddenly another person there with us just pointed and went albatross and people literally thought he was joking because you get albatrosses in the southern hemisphere and we were in the UK you just don't get them where we are and it was just crazy and the, the way he said it was just so calm and sort of people swiveled around their telescopes they went oh my god yes yeah, an albatross there was this black browed albatross just gliding towards us over the waves and it's just one of the most elegant looking birds I've ever seen in my life and they have this ginormous wingspan much more than a meter and it's unlike anything that you see in the UK otherwise I've seen lots of albatrosses since when I went to the US bird watching I think we saw a bunch of different albatrosses but it's just something about that first one and especially seeing it where it wasn't supposed to be was just so special and it was there were 14 of us stood on that cliff face that day and it didn't stop it carried on flying no one else ever saw it it was just us it sort of felt like it had magically appeared and then just as quickly magically disappeared a really beautiful moment and I think it also I feel particularly strongly about it because it was probably one of my first experiences with maybe misogyny maybe ages I don't know in terms of bird watching, in the, I remember being so pleased to go home and I logged it online because I was so excited that I'd seen this albatross in the UK. I remember someone reported my list because they went like, this little girl can't possibly have seen an albatross. She's clearly lying. And it entered into this whole debate. And I was like, but why couldn't I have seen it? And it was like the first time of many, many times that it was sort of someone going like, oh, she couldn't possibly have done that. And it was like, you know, me as a kid, extremely stubborn. I was like, I absolutely could have, and I'll prove it to you. Wow. As a bird watcher, I imagine you also know their calls because you have to keep your ears open as well as your eyes, right? And know when they're around and if you hear them. Do you have any favorite bird calls? So you've just unlocked sort of the dark secret of mine in that I'm really not a musical person and no matter how hard I try, I'm so rubbish at bird calls and it makes my life so difficult. And I try over and over again. I only know like a handful of ones that I live here literally every day in my garden and I wish that I was better. But I think I do still have a favourite bird call and it's probably the wren, which it's not the most exciting looking bird in the world. It's quite a small, dumpy, brown looking thing. It's what bird watchers affectionately refer to as LBJs or little brown jobs. Um, <laughs> and it's described as being like the mouse of the bird world. It sits at the bottom of hedges. It's really difficult to see. I personally think they're adorable, but lots of people think they're a bit boring. But despite being really, really tiny, they have this just gorgeous song. 
And like during the dawn chorus and things like that, they are the loudest bird in the garden by miles. It just sort of explodes out of them. Um, and they have this brilliant trilling sound. Whenever I am listening to the dawn chorus or anything like that, I can immediately pick out the wren and it makes me smile every time. Now, one of your favorite birds to watch, and one of the most endangered, is the spoon-billed sandpiper, which I actually read about recently and the problems it's facing in its migration. It migrates 8,000 kilometers from Siberia down the coasts of Russia and China and Korea to Myanmar and Bangladesh, which is where your family is from. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the population dwindled to 200, and now it's back up to 1,000. Now, you've been to Bangladesh to see them, haven't you? I have, yeah. And I think the spoon-billed sandpiper was probably one of my first brushes when I was younger with environmental campaigning, especially for a particular species. I became involved for a few different reasons. I live very near a place called WWT Slimbridge, which was attempting to restart the population. So they had some captive young birds that they were eventually going to re-release. And I was lucky enough to go see those when I was about 11 years old. They had about 20 birds in this space. And I think just looking in on it, mentally going like that's 10% of the entire world's population was just such an insane moment for me as a child. And so I ended up becoming very involved in the campaigning, partially, like you said, because of that link to Bangladesh. And that all came together when I was 13 in 2015. I ended up going out to Bangladesh for a few reasons, but mainly really to promote the conservation of the spoonbilled sandpiper, because by that point I had a bit of a media platform and I knew that people would listen and they were facing a lot of issues in Bangladesh. And I essentially was trying to stoke up a sense of national pride about these things and make people go like, actually, wait, we have this incredible bird that relies on Bangladesh. That's something we should care about. It helps that it's a very cute looking bird. It's very small and fluffy and it has, as the name suggests, a spoon shaped bill and it's just very sweet looking. But on that trip, I was also lucky enough to physically go out onto the mud flats off the south of Bangladesh near Cox's Bazaar and physically sort of wade through the mud with the telescope, essentially doing the population count to see how much they were struggling or thriving. And I think we either saw nine or 19 birds. I can't remember which, which is terrible. Not very many. But I remember specifically, we were very excited. It wasn't very many, but we were very excited because it was a sign that they were doing fairly well. And this was years ago. And since then, things have improved massively. I think that is partially because of the way that the conservation has been done, which is different from other things. It was cross-organisational. You had loads of big conservation organisations coming together. And it was also really international. You had projects going on in Siberia, in China, in Bangladesh, in Thailand possibly as well. And it was just really special and it did make a big difference. But obviously things still need to improve, things still need to get better, the birds still need helping. But it was such a major success story, it felt like, from bringing something back from what really felt like the brink of extinction. I think it's always going to be a bird that's really special to me. So what was endangering these populations, from what I understood, a lot of it has to do with construction along the Chinese coasts and the destruction of the mudflats where these spoonbill birds go down and scoop up food for fuel to carry on back and forth to Siberia because they fuel up and then they fly and fly and fly and fly and fly and fly and fly, right? 
Yeah, it's a really long journey. And I think one of the reasons it felt so important was it was a really big flagship species. And the reason I mentioned the international aspect of it being so important was because essentially they were facing pressure at every point on their journey, at every place that they spent time. And so in Siberia, there were various environmental pressures. As you mentioned, along the Chinese coast, industrialization was a really big problem. They essentially were running out of places to stop along their migratory route. They're pouring concrete on the mud flats, were, essentially. Yeah, and then in Bangladesh, there were issues to do with them potentially building a power plant out on the mud flats. There were issues to do with in Bangladesh, essentially, when people are very, very poor, very destitute, they will turn to the practice of bird trapping, which is catching wading birds with nets, a very looked down upon profession, but something that you end up doing if you are very poor. And they were being caught as bycatch, they're not even big enough to eat. And so one of the first things that they started doing was working with people in Bangladesh to give them alternate ways to live like no one wanted to be a bird trapper and so it was giving them bits of money giving them bits of training so that they could go into other professions and support themselves alongside education about why it's important not to harm these animals it was such a positive example of how conservation and environmentalism needs people as well like I think it's so easy to feel like these things are all very separate or to be like to save animals we need humans not to be here we know a lot of the time what you need is to give people resources and to give them understanding. And from there, a lot of the time, a lot of people aren't that interested in destroying the natural landscape around them. And now the spoonbill sandpiper population is up to about a thousand birds, isn't it? It is, yeah, which is just absolutely fantastic. And I think, again, they were classed as critically endangered less than 10 years ago. I think it is just such an amazing sign and hopefully the population will only continue to grow. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. If you're enjoying this episode, check out our chat with Merlin Sheldrake, a British biologist and author of a science-driven memoir called Entangled Life, how fungi make our worlds and change our minds and shape our futures. Merlin has a lot to say about fungi. And to keep up with hopeful stories about the climate movement, sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at thegreendream.studio. Now back to our 20-year-old bird watcher, Maya Rose Craig, author of Bird Girl, her delightful memoir about birds and life, published this month by Celadon Books in the United States and by Jonathan Cape in Great Britain. Let's talk a moment about hummingbirds. I adore hummingbirds. I think that they are absolutely magical. And I remember seeing so many different varieties when I was in Costa Rica. You called them amazing creatures too. How so? What makes them so amazing? Hummingbirds are my favorite type of birds in the world. The first moment I saw them as a child, I just absolutely fell in love with them. It was a few things. Firstly, they're just so beautiful. These amazing shimmering jewel tones all over their bodies, as well as the fact that I feel like scientists are normally sort of very unromantic when they're naming birds, but hummingbirds are sort of the exception where you're sort of talking about birds being described as emeralds or wood nymphs or fairies even. It's really beautiful. And it's just something about this frenetic darting from flower to flower, just drinking all their food. In the Americas, I was so upset when I found this out because I was so jealous. They're just a garden bird. 
in both the US and Central America, South America, people are literally just hanging up sugar water in their gardens and they're having just these gorgeous creatures hang out in their back garden. Just something about them that I saw them for the first time and I just totally fell in love with them. And I just sort of had this moment again where I went to my parents and I was like, I love hummingbirds. I want to try and see all of them. And have you? I'm working on it. There are quite a lot of them. There are over 300 species of hummingbirds and I'm just over halfway. But I am actually going to Costa Rica over the summer, which I'm very excited about. I know it's very good for hummingbirds, so I'm hoping I'll see a few more. In 2014, you started a blog when you were how old? 12? 11, yeah. (laughs) 11. And you called it Bird Girl after a superhero. Who is Bird Girl? For context, the reason I set up the blog was because I just started secondary school. I just started heading in the teenage direction where I was starting to realize that bird watching and nature was really uncool. And I'd also heard that there was this network of other kids my age who also had blogs who were also into nature and birds in the outdoors. And I was like, wait a minute, I want to be part of that. Because it was 2013, 2014, starting a blog was a thing that people did at the time. And I needed to give it a name quickly. And after some brief Googling, I came across this very cheesy 60s, 70s cartoon of a superhero called Bird Girl. And it was all very corny, but I also thought it was really fun. And I was like, you know what, if the shoe fits, I am in fact a bird girl. That's what I called my blog. And if I went back and told 11-year-old me that 21-year-old me is still called bird girl, she'd probably be like, what? I don't know, I've grown really attached to it, I suppose. And now you also have a book called Bird Girl. Let's listen to an excerpt from the audio version. From her teens, my mother has struggled with mental illness but she wouldn't be officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder until she was in her 40s. Mum took her first overdose at 15, and by the time she went to university, she was acutely unwell. Flipping between manic and depressive episodes, Mum would have weeks where she went out clubbing every night, followed by days in bed. It was during one of Mum's manic episodes that she met her first husband. In the throes of another, she married him in secret in Sheffield. You speak about your chaotic family in the book. And the trigger for most of that chaos has been your mother. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Who is bipolar? Can you tell us about that and how it impacted your life and your bird watching? I think it's really strange looking back on the process of conceiving this book because the original concept for me was I've spent my whole life being asked this question of like, but why birds? Why bird watching? Like as a teenage girl, I suppose. And I wanted someone to be able to read it and go like, oh, I understand. I get it. And it was only after I'd planned it all out that I realised that it made no sense without talking about other more personal family issues. Like the whole story just wouldn't piece together otherwise. And that was terrifying to me, like the concept of talking about all of this stuff. And I went to my mum and I asked her if she would even be okay with me talking about it. And weirdly, at the time, she was more okay and more enthusiastic than I was. And she loved the idea of telling a very honest, warts and all story about what it's like living with mental illness or living with someone who has mental illness. I talk a lot about how it's easy to look back in retrospect and go like, oh yeah, of course, those were symptoms of someone struggling with mental illness. But my mum was always someone who was incredibly fiery, incredibly passionate, incredibly hardworking. She was a really good lawyer, so she was always really busy. None of it seemed very questionable until, again, in retrospect. 
things carried on going until she went through a very severe depressive episode and ended up being sectioned and put in hospital when I was about eight I think which was a really really difficult time I'd always been very close with both my parents and then suddenly my mum was gone both physically and mentally to be honest when she came back out it was a really difficult period at the same time my parents ages before had booked this three-week holiday to Ecuador and it was over the summer it was intense it was going to be one of the bird watching holiday where you wake up pre-dawn and go to bed long after sunset and all that sort of thing and they questioned whether or not it was sensible to go on this trip especially because my mum was still quite unwell if they told the doctors they were going they probably wouldn't have been given approval but I think in the end both of them but especially my dad actually came to the conclusion that they had nothing to lose and they might as well and so they went on this holiday and I remember we first turned up in Ecuador and I think my dad said to me afterwards he was worried he had made a mistake because my mum was really really struggling and even though she was someone who was very passionate about birds and bird watching, she was struggling to even spot birds sat in trees. She didn't have the patience for it. It was tired, very irritable. But over the course of this three-week holiday, seeing just the physical change in her, let alone the mental one, was incredible. By the end of the holiday, she was so much more at peace. I had rebuilt a lot of my relationship with her. She was much better at bird watching. That was the holiday where my parents came to the conclusion that traveling and birdwatching was the way that we were going to manage this and in the long term continue to manage it. I think someone said to me about the book, out of the three of us, my parents and I, none of us come away looking perfect or even particularly good at times. And I think that's maybe the hallmark of honest storytelling, because I'm sure there are moments where we all really sucked over and over again. For us, it was the traveling and it was the nature and it was the birds that helped us get through things and helped us stick together. And it still is to this day. Activism has helped too, hasn't it? When you were 17, you pivoted to activism in the face of this, and you were invited in 2020 to share the stage with Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg at the Bristol Youth Strike for Climate rally. What was that like, and did that really sort of kick off a new chapter in your bird girl life, do you think? Yeah, that was an incredible moment. Like I mentioned before, it was kind of because of the birds that I became involved in climate and environmental campaigning from quite a young age just because I felt like as someone who loved birds and loved nature how could I not care about all these issues that were causing so many problems for the natural world and so I was doing all this stuff for years and I remember at the time it was weird and slightly uncool and I remember being about 14 or 15 maybe and suddenly youth strikes for climate and Greta Thunberg seemed to appear out of nowhere and it was just such an exciting moment. It suddenly became a young person's issue and suddenly took the political centre stage and I think for me that was one of the first times that I could see for myself just how important collective power were and how important the youth voice was. I already, as so many people my age, had so much love and respect for Greta Thunberg and then to go from that to a few years later being invited to speak on stage with her at the local youth strike was just this crazy experience. She only gave like a week's warning that she was even coming to Bristol. It was all very last minute. And so by the time I got contacted, I was like, oh my God, I only have a few days, but it has to be perfect. And I was so nervous. But I think on the day it was so special. It was like tens and tens of thousands of people showed up in Bristol, despite the fact that it was 
pouring down with rain it was really vile really unpleasant actually and yet no one seemed to care like there was just such a positive atmosphere of hope and desire for change and you know we went on this massive march through the city and it was things like all of us were just sodden to the bone you know shoes soaked through and again no one cared there were all these kids who had snuck out of school just to get a chance to glance at Greta Thunberg it was such a special day I think for everyone in the local area, actually, it was just, it was really incredible. You have also launched Black to Nature, a charity to increase engagement in what you call VME communities. VME standing for Visible Minority Ethnic. Can you explain why you coined this term and how it works, what you do with it? In the UK, there's been a lot of discourse for a long time, essentially on what to call people who aren't white. In the US, they have people of colour, but that's not a term that people are comfortable in the UK. And then for a long time, we've used the government census term, BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic, but people weren't really comfortable with that. And it isn't just Black and Asian communities, it includes various white ethnic minorities as well, which is always valid. And specifically for the work that I was doing, it was working with people who felt like they were visibly standing out, especially within environmental spaces, and therefore didn't feel comfortable going to places like the countryside because they knew that they looked different from other people who were there. And so it was this idea of being like visibly a minority. And so that's why we coined that specifically for Black to Nature to use, but that has actually been picked up and gained quite a lot of traction. I started the Black to Nature campaigning when I was 13. And at the time, it came from the fact that as someone who loved nature and loved the outdoors and also wasn't white. I'd never seen anyone who looked like me or my mum or my sister out in nature or out in the countryside before. There was this almost like childish desire to share that with other children and for other kids to be able to do that. And so I ended up running a nature camp. I brought some kids out from Bristol and gave them that opportunity to engage with nature and it all went really well. And that disproved all the people who'd been telling me, you know, there are just certain types of people who don't care about nature or the outdoors. And I was like, but that's just objectively not true. The further I engaged with the issue and the more I was digging into it, the bigger it seemed. So it went from this thing where it was, oh, you know, like certain communities aren't really going out into nature and the outdoors to linking into much wider issues to do with race and class in the UK and to do with intersectionality in general. And Black's Nature has become a much bigger charity running a lot of grassroots events. And we've worked with hundreds of kids over the last seven or eight years, which is amazing. But it's also what's got me eventually into talking and thinking about global climate justice and looking at intersectionality in terms of climate change in particular. And so I've spent a lot of time in the last few years really advocating for equality or even equity within the climate change movement for the West to examine its relationship with the global South or indigenous peoples who are suffering because of climate change, just figuring out how we can strive to make it less Western centric, basically, and actually help the people that it's supposed to help. Now, is there other activism or projects you're working on that we should know about? I spend a lot of time talking about biodiversity and biodiversity loss, which I would describe as the slightly less glamorous sibling of climate change. I think essentially biodiversity loss and climate change are two sides of the same coin. And yet one is talked about much less than the other. And so especially in the UK, where 
this is a massive issue. We're one of the most biodiversity depleted countries in the world, which a lot of people don't realise. I also spend a lot of time advocating for rewilding and caring for our local environments, all of that sort of thing. I think showing that the two things link together, I spend a lot of time, for example, talking about rewilding, allowing nature and the countryside to revert to its natural, healthy state in whatever form that might take. And that's brilliant in terms of flood management and things like that. Biodiversity is something that I care about deeply. I feel like a lot of other people maybe don't realise it's so important. Now, how can listeners help? What can they do? Can they support (laughs) Black to Nature? Can they, of course, they'll buy your book. What else can they do to support what you're working on? Or even to become birders themselves and get involved in that. I would love it if people came away a tad more interested in bird watching or engaging with nature. And I do quite often have people going like, oh, what do I have to do to become a bird watcher? And my answer is always go outside and look for some birds. You don't necessarily need to know what they are. You don't need to know all the calls or the Latin names. You don't need a fancy pair of binoculars. You just need to go outside and enjoy being outside and that's what makes you a bird watcher and that's what gains an appreciation and a love for the outdoors so I'd love it if more people were engaging with nature in that way also if people have time maybe thinking of a way to make their local space whether that's their garden or their local park more environmentally friendly like planting some native flowers doing some gorilla gardening putting up some bird feeders it does all make a difference nature is relying on us so it does all make a difference And one last question, is there a bird out there that you still haven't seen that you're aiming to see? Yes, and it's a hummingbird. I am so desperate still to see the bee hummingbird, which is the smallest hummingbird, but also I think possibly the smallest bird in the world that is literally the size of a bee. And you get it in Cuba and it is absolutely gorgeous. Of all the birds, but also of all the hummingbirds, that is like the one I want to see the most. Are you planning a trip to Cuba soon? Eventually. I'll make my way there eventually. I have to remind myself when it feels like everything's very urgent and then I have to go like, no, it's okay. I'm 20. I have time. You have time. Thank you so much, Maya Rose, for joining us on The Green Dream. Keep up the twitching and keep doing good works for humanity and the planet. You're an inspiration to all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Green Dream. We'll be back in two weeks with Bas Smets, the Belgian landscape architect who is redesigning the park and garden around the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris, which is being rebuilt after the devastating fire four years ago this month. He'll tell us how he's tackling this monumental project with climate change in mind. We hope you'll join us. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and its select stores. The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas. From Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert and mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter, where my handle for both is at Dana Thomas Paris. And you can sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at our website, thegreendream.studio. Thank you for listening.